Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about General Tilney's Breakfast China. We are back with Catherine Moreland as she arrives at Northanger Abbey with General Tilney, Henry, and Eleanor. After her first night at the Abbey, Catherine joins the Tilneys for breakfast, and the general has a lot to say about the breakfast set. And so here is the passage from the book. The elegance of the breakfast set forced itself on Catherine's notice when they were seated at table. And, luckily, it had been the general's choice. He was enchanted by her approbation of his taste, confessed it to be neat and simple, thought it right to encourage the manufacture of his country, and for his part, to his uncritical palate, the tea was as well flavored from the clay of Staffordshire as from that of Dresden or Sevres. But this was quite an old set purchased two years ago. The manufacture was much improved since that time. He had seen some beautiful specimens when last in town. And had he not been perfectly without vanity of that kind, might have been tempted to order a new set. He trusted, however, that an opportunity might ere long occur of selecting one, though not for himself. Catherine was probably the only one of the party who did not understand him. This is one of my favorite scenes in this entire novel. It is so funny. It is so funny. <gasps> Catherine is just like, okay, what's, I don't understand. <laughs> when General Tilney refers to his breakfast set here, he is referring to the pottery or porcelain, which was generally called china or chinaware during this period. And before we get into the more specific references the general is making, Let's just do a micro-history, and we really do mean a micro-history of porcelain. Yeah, porcelain was developed in China around 2,000 years ago, about the time of the Ming Dynasty, which is from 1368 to 1644. This porcelain started to make its way to Europe as a luxury item. The two most notable European houses for manufacturing porcelain in the early 18th century were the two specifically mentioned by General Tilney, Dresden and Sevres. And it's worth pointing out that in the novel, Austin actually writes Sev with an E with an accent circumflex, rather than Sevres with the E l'accent grave. So she actually has a misspelling here. They're two different words, but they sound a little bit the same. So Sev is what she's written. Sevres is actually referring to this kind of porcelain. The Dresden porcelain was developed by Johann Friedrich Bötger, and he set up his first true hard-paste porcelain factory in Meissen in 1710. Though it is nicknamed Dresden porcelain, it is really from the Meissen factory. Right. And fun fact here, Bötger considered himself an alchemist and bragged that he could make gold. After he made this alchemist claim... He was imprisoned by the ruler of Saxony, Augustus the Strong, and told to prove it. No big deal. It's fine. I don't think that initial conversation probably went very well for Bodger. He did not, in fact, make any gold. But he did come up with his recipe for porcelain, which was apparently close enough for Augustus to release Bodger and set up the Meissen factory. He's like, okay, you didn't give me actual gold, but, you know, 
porcelain. Close enough. This is pretty good. (laughs) I will allow it. The factory belonged to Augustus, who was obsessed with porcelain, and he just had this factory cranking out all sorts of products for himself as well as others in high society, and it started to flood the European market. And the French were very quick to try and jump on this porcelain production trend because this is the first time it's been seen in Europe. And they developed, there was a soft paste porcelain that was produced in Chantilly Saint Cloud in Vincennes from 1738. And soft paste porcelain was more fragile and fired at lower temperatures than hard paste porcelains like those from China and Dresden. According to Matilda Byrne, a specialist on European ceramics for Christie's, Quote, from the beginning, the Vincennes factory enjoyed a privileged status as manufacture royale among the porcelain factories, with royal patronage and financial support from King Louis XV and Madame de Pompadour. By 1756, the Vincennes premises were considered too cramped, and a new factory was built on the edge of the village of Sèvres where technical developments and artistic achievements continue to pace. So that that move to to Sèvres is where it's getting its name. Byrne continues, pointing out that, quote, the factory also was well known for its brilliant blue celeste ground color, which was introduced at the manufactory in 1753. It was one of the costliest colors to produce, and Louis XV famously ordered an entire service in the color soon after its development. He was like, this is my favorite. I love this. Seems very on brand for him as well. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, expensive, not a problem. Very, very expensive. I would like that set, please. Thank you. I'd like five of them, actually. (laughs) Yes. General Tilney, however, makes a big deal out of the fact that his breakfast set does not, in fact, come from these popular European companies. Okay, (laughs) let's all be clear on this, people. According to Hazel Jones in her article, Tensions at the Table, Dining Room Dynamics in Abbeys and Castles, she states that, quote, the Abbeys Staffordshire produced breakfast set is likely to be Wedgwood, with showrooms in St. James's, London, and interestingly, in Milsom Street, or Spode, whose shop was in Lincoln's Inn Fields, or Minton with an outlet in Mayfair. So both Spode and Wedgwood are big producers of English pottery at this time, and they're both making important and distinctive innovations in English pottery. Wedgwood, for example, was established in 1759 by Josiah Wedgwood and is best known for its unglazed, contrasting pale blue and white jasperware, which is more like stoneware than glazed porcelain. And Wedgwood blue is still considered a signature color from this company. Linda Slothaber, in her article, Elegance and Simplicity, Jane Austen and Wedgwood, mentions that Austen actually grew up dining on Wedgwood, China at Steventon Rectory. Her parents did not begin their marriage with the set, but rather purchased it after they were more financially secure. The set was later auctioned before they moved to Bath. Austen herself also visited Wedgwood's showroom in London with her brother Edward and niece Fanny. In her letter to Cassandra on September 16, 1813, she states that, We then went to Wedgwood's, where my brother and Fanny chose a dinner set. I believe the pattern is a small lozenge in purple, between lines of narrow gold, and it is to have the crest. 
So getting some fancy family china. Yeah, getting some custom-made stuff. Love it. Josiah Spode is another British potter. And apparently Josiah was like a hot name for British pottery at the time. <laughs> so Josiah Spode established his business in 1770. And in 1783, he started working on what's called the underglaze blue transfer printing process, which I won't pretend to understand, but it was apparently a very big deal. <laughs> if you are listening to this episode and you happen to be a pottery printing expert, mm -hmm. please send us an email. We would love to have this explained to Absolutely. us. Absolutely. I definitely would be interested. <laughs> but Spode also went on to innovate what's called bone china, which literally includes bone ash in the mix to create very fine, translucent kind of porcelain. There are debates as to whether Spode was the originator of the process, but he definitely made it commercially popular. And bone china was almost exclusively an English form of porcelain. So that brings us to this special moment at breakfast. <laughs> Why is General Tilney making such a big deal about this china set? <laughs> What's going on here? So much to say, right? As we've already kind of mentioned, there is a certain amount of demonstrating of allegiance mm -hmm, going on mm -hmm. here. So remember that England and France are facing off throughout this period. Northanger Abbey takes place in the mid to late 1790s when France and England were at war. The general is therefore very anti-French during the mm -hmm. novel. So when he specifically says his breakfast set is not from France, he's letting us know something yeah. about himself. Oh, yeah. That's definitely overt, for sure. And it's worth pointing out, I mentioned earlier in the episode that there is that misspelling of Sèvres to Sèvres. And Austin may have done this unintentionally, or it might be a little dig at General Tilney's lack of knowledge about French culture, that he might be just misspeaking because he's just so not interested in the French. Right. But another reason that this scene is important is that the general is trying to show off his wealth and luxury to Catherine because he thinks she's a wealthy heiress who will marry Henry. He's persistently and ostentatiously trying to demonstrate his wealth to Catherine throughout the novel. And we mentioned this also in our episode on Petty France. According to Claudia Johnson's notes in the Oxford World's Classics edition of Northanger Abbey, she argues that the general is referring to Wedgwood particularly, and that the general is somewhat defensively touting the superiority of his own china, manufactured by Josiah Wedgwood in Staffordshire, over imported china. Wedgwood was famous for promoting new designs often, thus inspiring conspicuous consumers, such as General Tilney, to keep up with the latest sets. As a side note, the general might be really proud of his fancy breakfast set here, but he's got nothing on the actual historical figure of William Beckford of Font Hill Abbey, who had 10,000 pieces of china in his collection. That's a lot of china. Where do you even store all that? That is I know, that is that's so a storage much. problem entirely. Like, you've got to have rooms dedicated to that kind of collection. Oh, wow. And according to an article in 1845 in the Bath Chronicle that was announcing the sale, the sale of his collection, quote, Mr. Beckford's custom was to have a different arrangement of china for every day in the year. The cup and saucer he used today at his breakfast were placed in a cabinet until a revolving year brought them into request. And such was the custom likewise at dinner, dessert, and tea. That is a lot. 
General Tilney can only aspire right? to that level. Like, I, I don't even know if General Tilney can, like, even conceptualize that kind of fancy china collection. <laughs> so back at Northanger Abbey, here at this incredibly awkward breakfast, the general is busy trying to razzle-dazzle Catherine, you know, by making sure that she understands that this was quite an old set purchased two years ago, which is code for, it's actually basically brand new. Like, I just need you to know that I'm really keeping up with the latest and greatest. <laughs> the general goes on to share that the manufacture was much improved since that time. He had seen some beautiful specimens when last in town, and had he not been perfectly without vanity of that kind, might have been tempted to order a new set. This is obviously Austin giving us some great insight into the general's character, but we can also possibly read the general's obsession with these manufacturer's improvements as a reference to the innovations in spode bone porcelain, which was really taking off in the 1790s. So while most scholars seem to lean toward Wedgwood as the likely choice, spode is still definitely in the running as the china that the general is referencing here. But really, I feel like the important takeaway is that General Tilney is the king of, oh, this old thing? Yeah, it's, he's, he's like mastered the humble brag here with like major emphasis on brag. Yeah, that's... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then the general goes on without any subtlety, pointing out that there is a likely future event that will provide an opportunity ere long of selecting some more. Oh, but it's not for himself, <laughs> you know, just... Austin goes on to point out that Catherine was probably the only one of the party that didn't understand him. So he, he's sitting there like, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you're going to marry Henry. It's going to be great. And Henry and Eleanor are likely blushing up to their hairlines at their dad being so tacky to refer to this marriage while bragging about his breakfast set. I don't know. I kind of love it because it's basically like he's essentially telling her up front what her wedding gift will be. And I can appreciate that, you know. <laughs> He's like, you don't even have to put this on your registry. I've got it covered. Don't even worry about it. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's not subtle. This scene is also revealing about how the general treats his daughter. It would be understood by Austin's contemporary readership that Eleanor is the woman of the house at Northanger Abbey. And as such, she should have a certain amount of control over how things are furnished and how the household is managed. However, according to Hazel Jones along with the mortification that comes with General Tilney going on and on about his breakfast set, there is also an undercurrent of humiliation that goes along with, quote, Eleanor's lack of influence in the day-to-day -day running of the home. Eleanor's taste is ignored and her position in the household undermined by her father's dominance over the minutest of domestic concerns. So she's the lady of the house, but really... Her father is running the show. Yeah. And he's being very, like, it's very over, like, roughshod. There's no nuance to the fact that he is completely disregarding Eleanor's potential role here. He's, he's constantly shutting her down. And it's pretty obvious that he's the one who chose this breakfast set. And I think that that's a very subtle nuance that you could easily miss with how he's treating Eleanor specifically. Yep. And as a final mic drop on General Tilney which we can all enjoy. Hazel Jones compares him to the villain of Anne Radcliffe's Mysteries of Udolpho. She says, Tyranny at the table is one of the strategies Austin deploys in Northanger Abbey to illustrate 
mock, and undercut the conventions of the gothic horror novel. Polite, inclusive conversation is not a prime consideration for either Count Montoni, from Udolpho, or General Tilney. But while Radcliffe's villain broods over his food with a stern and sullen countenance, the general adopts the strategy of silencing his children and discomposing Catherine with flattery, false charm, and pointed attention. He's just really not that great. (laughs) No, I mean, this whole scene is just so awkward. Mm -hmm. It's so awkward. Yeah, for everybody in the room, you know, except for General Tilney, who's like oblivious to how awful he's being (laughs) or doesn't care. Well, this entire scene, right before the passage that reread at the top of this episode, kind of begins with General Tilney sort of being like, oh, see, slept in kind of late today. Mm -hmm. You know, the line is, so she'd been having her little kind of cute conversation with Henry Tilney about learning to love a hyacinth. And then Catherine was saved the embarrassment of attempting an answer by the entrance of the general, whose smiling compliments announced a happy state of mind, but whose gentle hint of sympathetic early rising did not advance her composure. (laughs) You know, he's one of those hosts who he's smiling and it seems like everything he's saying should be designed to make you comfortable, but it's really designed to make him comfortable. Yeah, and it's designed to make it very clear that you are the guest. Not not in a, like, your home is my home kind of way, but, like, you're in my home kind of way. Yeah, this is how we do things here, okay? Yeah. <laughs> it's very pointed and very, like, it's just, it's uncomfortable. So we do see references to China as a generic term for porcelain come up in Austin's other novels. Perhaps the most notable other instance is in Sense and Sensibility, with the mention of Mrs. Henry Dashwood's linens and china that she will be taking with her. And of course, this bothers Fanny Dashwood since she points out that the set of breakfast china that Mrs. Dashwood inherits is twice as handsome as what belongs to this house. She's talking about Norland Park. A great deal too handsome, in my opinion, for any place they can ever afford to live in. So she's like, it's too fancy for Norland Park. Can you imagine this breakfast china at a place like Barton Cottage? Yeah, yeah. She's just, she's like, it's too, it's too nice for them, is what she's really mm-hmm. saying. And it's just so snobby. Oh, it's awful. They don't deserve this china. Yeah. She is very worked up about the inherited breakfast set. Obviously, we can't all be a William Beckford with a different set for every meal for for every every day day of the year, but... But Fanny wants to believe that that is her status in life. Yeah. At the very least, you still want to have at least one set of extremely fancy breakfast china. That you can brag over with your guests. Yes, exactly. After you've gently chastised them for sleeping in just a little too late. As any host would, really. What delicious awkwardness all the way around. (laughs) You can find us on Instagram at The Thing About Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. You can also check out our website, thethingaboutaustin.com and email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com. And if you would like to support us, you can always leave us five stars on Apple Podcasts or your app of choice. And we wanted to share just a bit of an extremely kind review from listener Sofmet, who says, Mrs. Austin would love this as much as her potatoes. (laughs) This podcast has only one shortcoming. There aren't 365 episodes yet. And that means I can't listen to it every day of the year. Oh, thank you. So nice. Thank you. 
And stay tuned for next episode, where we will be talking about Gowland Lotion with guest June O. Oh. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.